Okay, so we are starting our second session of the day on self-examination. Um, and so uh, the good news is there's a ton of uh, literature about self-examination. Um, I think it was St. Bernard who said that um, if you, if you want to make yourself a spiritual master, your own spiritual master, you are being a scholar to a fool. Um, and so the good news is we have a lot of Christians who have gone before us on this topic who, uh, who can guide our thinking on self-examination. So self-examination as a spiritual discipline is the prayerful study and analysis of one's actions, motives, and feelings in light of the gospel and the church's moral teaching. So Martin Thornton, our Anglican priest and, uh, and, and pastoral theologian, tells us that self-examination uh, is both a continual process and a particular exercise. So it's a continuous process because we really never reach the end point of it. We, are, we have to always be vigilant about our progress, about what we're doing. In many ways, self-examination is a lifestyle. However, it's a particular exercise because there are specific forms that we can and should use, and there are particular times that we should set aside to do it. To return to our metaphor from this morning of the theater... Examination is like when actors receive notes from their director. After rehearsals and performances, the director gives notes that include his or her analyses, encouragement, and corrections. In self-examination, if we truly open ourselves up to God's guidance, we will come to prayerfully see things as they are and see our part in the play more clearly. And so I would say that with self-examination, there are both descriptive and prescriptive elements involved. So it's descriptive because when we're going through self-examination, we have to kind of replay the day or replay the event that we're thinking about. What happened? How did we experience it? How did we feel? What was our mo- Why did we do what we did? Why did we react the way that we did? It invites us to know thyself. So we want to really understand what happened. It's descriptive, but it's also prescriptive because as we engage in self-examination with a sanctified imagination, we can begin to ask ourselves what should have been in light of what is, what should be. So what criterion should be used in self-examination? How, anytime you, you are examining something, you have to have some sort of rubric by which to examine it, right? When I assign a paper for one, of my, for one of my classes, I give them a rubric and then I grade the paper according to the rubric. So what are our rubrics? What are our expectations? Well, the first thing should be the life of our Lord. So Jesus told his disciples in St. John eight twelve, I am the light of the world. He that followeth me shall not walk in darkness, but shall have the light of life. Thomas Akempis begins his devotional classic, The Imitation of Christ, with the following observation. We are advised to imitate Christ's life and habits if we wish to be truly enlightened and free from all bitterness of heart. So he exhorts us, let our chief effort to be to study the life of Christ. 
And where do we learn the most about Christ? Well, certainly in the scriptures, but in particular, scripture tells us, 1 Peter 2.21, For even hereunto were ye called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that ye should follow his steps. So it's in his suffering, it's in the cross, that we predominantly learn about who Christ is and therefore the standard for what we should be measuring up to. Of course, the whole rest of the scriptures are helpful in self-examination because the whole Bible, every page of it, Old and New Testament, is a testimony to Christ. Further, scripture, particularly the New Testament, is the beginning of the church wrestling with what it means to live under the cross, a phrase that we'll talk about in a moment. Plus, we acknowledge that the scriptures are an authority for the church. They're an authority both for what we believe, but also for what we behave, for how we behave. The scriptures provide for us the foundation of all of our doctrines and of our moral guidance and expectations. Of course, our readings of Scripture, both in doctrinal terms and in ethical terms, should be guided by the moral teachings and the doctrinal teachings of the church. Disagreements, of course, exist concerning the application of the Bible, because it's not always super clear in and of itself, and that lack of clarity is often exacerbated by the fact that we're separated and removed from the original context of the Scriptures by thousands of years— Further, anytime humans try to interpret and read texts, there are always going to be disagreements. Um, I was reminded of a, uh, of, a, of a wedding service that was done on that show on TLC, uh, 19 Kids and Counting, um, or 20 Kids. I don't remember how many kids they ended up having by the end of it. But when one of the kids got married, the reading at the wedding was from, the, uh, was from when Jesus turned the water into wine at the wedding feast in Cana. And the pastor, who was a fundamentalist Baptist, said, it's not wine, it's grape juice, because I refuse to believe that a drop of alcohol passed through our Lord's precious lips. Well, you know, if you read that passage, there's really no doubt that it's alcohol, because the manager of the whole feast says, oh, you waited till everyone was drunk to bring out the good wine. But anyway, so the point being is we always come to the text with a whole host of presuppositions that can often cloud our reading. Uh, As one priest mentor of mine said, uh, never let uh, the Bible get in the way of your theology. So so disagreements will always exist. And, And further, the way that we read the Bible in our context is very different from the way any Christian read the Bible up until the invention of the printing press, which is that the Bible was never meant to be read in an individualistic vacuum. It was a communal book. It was encountered in the, in the church. So nobody had their own copy of Paul's letter to the Romans. The whole church at Romans had the letter, and someone would get up and read it, just like we have lectors who get up and read the scripture to us today. That's how you in, encountered the scripture. And even uh, after, the, after the patristic period, uh, when people were illiterate, they didn't have morning devotion and quiet time where they sat with a book by themselves in their room. They would go to church, and in the church, there would be these wonderful stained glass windows and icons and statues that were there to show and illustrate and tell them the stories of the scriptures. Um, So it was always a communal encounter more than an individualistic one. Now, that doesn't mean we shouldn't read the Bible by ourselves or anything like that. It just means that we have to check our own individual reading 
over and against the larger traditions of the church, which should then be a framework for us to have various encounters with the scriptures. So in in effect, what I'm saying is we are not lay popes. Just because we don't have a pope doesn't mean that we get to be our own popes. Um, So we have to be careful when we read the scripture. And this is especially true, I think, um, in a world where the church and the world are on two very different trajectories. So it would, so there are parts of the church that listen too much to the world and capitulate to worldly thinking. But similarly, as individuals, sometimes we can capitulate too easily to worldly thinking, and we need to be checked by the teachings of the church at large. So there's kind of a, a dynamic relationship there. Now, the final point of introduction is to just say that Martin Thornton gives us a very important reminder about self-examination, which is that self-examination should be uh, inherently, uh, should be liberating. It should be liberating. Um, It should not be done from a place of anxiety, nor should it result in more anxiety. The scriptures tell us not to be anxious. In fact, in the, uh, in the self-examination uh, template that I will go over in a moment, the seven deadly sins one, um, one of the sins, I think under pride, is not believing God can forgive you. Um, and so if, if we're ever in that kind of situation or we're anxious, we're wondering if God can ever forgive us, then we really need to pray for his grace. Be anxious or be careful for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, Philippians 4, 6. We could also think about Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 to 34. Don't worry about what you'll wear or what you'll eat, because God, uh, God takes care of the birds of the air and the lilies of the field, so how much more will he take care of you? Um, So self-examination should be done from a place that recognizes our total and complete dependence on God, which is a recognition that should be heightened more and more as we continue to be more and more self-reflective. And again, to go back to what we were saying earlier, dependence on God is paradoxically liberating. We find freedom in the fact that we're totally dependent on him because it frees us from the tyranny of the self And the illusion that we're the ones who are actually in control of everything. Um, That's a big burden to lift off your shoulders when you realize you're not the one holding it all together. Um, So why should we do self-examination? Well, there are a number of reasons why. The first thing is that self-examination helps us listen to God and it stokes our Christian moral imagination. Prayer is often described as conversation with God, and it is that. In Mass, the celebrant stands in persona Christi. He plays the role of Christ, and he speaks to God's people on behalf of God, and the people speak back to him. The Lord be with you and with thy spirit. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up unto the Lord. Let us give thanks and praise to our Lord God. It is meet and right so to do. That's a conversation between God, between Christ, and the church. And we get to uh, have a little window into that. When we pray, 
especially in contemplative and meditative settings, sometimes, like in any conversation, we should speak less and listen more. So that means that perhaps silence should be a part of our daily prayer lives as we open ourselves up to God, receiving what he wants to say to us. It's not a monologue, it's a dialogue. As we reflect and meditate on various encounters and events and thoughts and feelings that we have, we can begin to seek God's direction. What would he want us to do or to say? It's helpful here to take a quick digression into some modern neuroscience. So habits that we have are habits because our brains get wired in a certain way from, re- from performing repetitive actions. So every morning I have a routine. I wake up, morning prayer, and then there are a, a tasks that I do in the morning, check my email, uh, check the grades for some of the classes that I teach, um, and a few other little things here and there. And it's a habit now. Like when I wake up, it's almost automatic that that's what I do because I've intentionally tried to uh, develop that routine. So it's a habit. Um, And of course, not all our habits are good habits. You know, we might have a habit of smoking a cigarette every uh, 30 minutes or something like that. Um, That's not a good habit, but it it becomes ingrained in our brains. So um, those of us who have been Christians for any amount of time may uh, have may have experienced what we call besetting sins. Besetting sins are those repetitive failings that we struggle with. They are habits, bad habits. They're something like ruts in the brain because they form and strengthen neural pathways in our brain through bad experiences. Um, so like, let's, let's say that I decide I get stressed one day and I say, you know what? I need to smoke a cigarette because I'm stressed. So when I go out, I smoke a cigarette. My brain now has formed a connection between smoking and the feeling of stress, and then the, the sort of reward that I get from the nicotine in the cigarette. Okay, so what do you think it's easier for me to do the next time I get stressed? Smoke another cigarette, right? Um, and so the more I feel stressed, the more I'm going to start smoking, and the more I start smoking, the more that I get kind of addicted to that feeling that I get from the cigarette, right? So the connection becomes capacious. The more we do it, the easier it is to do right? The, the more that neural pathway gets stronger and becomes a default. What modern neuroscience tells us, and I think this is really interesting, is that the imagination utilizes similar parts of the brain as experience does. So if you imagine something, the way your brain operates, it's almost like it's really happening. So it's like when you wake up from a dream and it's like a a weird dream and you're confused or a scary dream and you're actually scared, you know. Um, I had a weird dream. uh, We have a parishioner at 8 o'clock who uh, brings, um, he grows his own peppers and he brings salsa. And I had some before bed one night. I had a very weird dream where I was on a game show called Is It a Card or a Bunt Cake? And it was hosted by Drew Carey. And it was literally, he was holding a package and you had to guess whether it was a card or a bunt cake. And I, I remember thinking the dream was so absurd, I was laughing at the dream while I was having it. It was very weird. 
Um, but anyways, so, it, but that's an imagination, right? And so, so as I was doing it, I start laughing because it was really funny, you know? Um, just like if I had experienced something in the real world that was really funny, I would start laughing the same way. Our brain, uh, our brain uses the same parts for imagination and experience. Because of this, therapists have actually started using um, imaginative exercises with patients who have extreme phobias or uh, kind, certain kinds of PTSD because it helps them get out of the ruts that they're in as far as whatever sets off that fear or whatever sets off the, uh, the, the trauma that they experience. And that's one of the insidious things about trauma. It fires the same neurons in the brain as what happened, what fired when you experienced it. So that's why trauma can be an ongoing thing. It's never just a, something you deal with and then get over. It, it, can, it can be an ongoing uh, presence in our lives. So all that to say, in the context of becoming a disciple then, the imagination can be harnessed so that we can begin to consider a new and more excellent way for us to behave. So let's say that on my way home today, I'm driving and someone on Route 3 uh, cuts me off dangerously, which has happened more than once on Route 3. My initial reaction might be to yell some choice words at them and perhaps make certain kinds of gestures at them. Which is funny because I'll be wearing my collar. I, my, I was, my friend Father Miles and I, uh, every time we ride, he gets pulled over uh, together when we're in our collars. But one time we were driving together and he started honking at a car in front of us. And I said, we're both wearing our collars, man. What are they going to look back and think? <laughs> um, but anyway, so... so so let's say, so I, I do that. And then tonight I go home and I decide to practice self-examination. And so I think through the day. I think through this part of the day, which has been pretty good. I've, I've behaved myself pretty well for the most part. Um, but then I get to the ride home and I get to this encounter that I had where I yelled some words I shouldn't have yelled and I made an obscene gesture that I shouldn't have made. Um, what I can do as a part of the self-examination is not just say that was wrong and bad. I shouldn't have done that. But rather, it becomes an opportunity to exercise the imagination. What should I have done instead? And thinking through that, I can almost relive the experience. What would have been different? He cut me off, and instead of immediately yelling, I'm just going to take a second and I'm going to breathe. I'm going to pray the Jesus prayer. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. I'm going to say Hail Mary. Something like that, just to stop myself from... You know, so I'm, I'm reliving the event, but through the imagination. So then the next time someone cuts me off, I have a, I have a, a framework or, or, or a neural pathway that's been established that I can use instead of the gestures and the, and the bad four-letter words. We do this with Jude. So, um, so his problem has – one of his problems has been uh, that he won't obey immediately. So we tell him to do something, and he dawdles, and we tell him to do something again, and he dawdles, and we tell him to do something a third time, and maybe he'll finally do it. Well, the problem is, if we're in a parking lot, and we say, Jude, don't do that, and he does it, that could be really dangerous for him, right? He needs to obey immediately. Or if he's beating his brother with a hockey stick, which he did do recently, um, and we say, stop, he needs to stop immediately, right? So what, we've, what we started doing is instead of, um, instead of, just saying, Jude, next time you need to obey immediately, is I took him and I put him at the end of our hallway and I said, okay, walk towards me and I'm going to give you instructions as you're walking. And when I say your name, you're going to stop and you're going to say, yes, sir. 
And then I'm going to tell you what to do, and you're going to do it immediately. And it was simple things. It was do jumping jacks. Okay, so he's doing jumping jacks. Okay, stop. You know, and, but that way he was getting used to obeying. He was practicing obeying immediately. Um, and so self-examination gives us the opportunity to practice how we would reconfigure relationships that, or, or events that may have gone wrong during the day. So our posture and self-examination should be one of reception and imagination, listening to God and envisioning how we can more fully cooperate with him in, like, in similar situations. The second thing about why we should do self-examination is that if we're doing self-examination, we can be more intentional about how we order our lives. So James 1.22 tells us that we should be doers of the word and not hearers only. And our Christian lives should be one of progress. We should be closer to God now than we were five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, it doesn't always work uh, linearly in a direct manner, but looking back, we should be able to see uh, ways in which God has, um, God has brought us to where we are. The more um, the um, that requires us to have a higher degree of intentionality. If we want to grow, we have to be we have to do it on purpose. So I'm writing my thesis right now for my degree at Neshota House, and I found that if I don't write it, it doesn't get written. Surprising. So what I have to do is. Every morning, part of that routine that I've established is 45 minutes of just writing. Don't do anything else. Don't have Facebook up. Don't have Twitter up. Turn my phone on so that it's not on don't disturb mode. Just write for 45 minutes. And then what happens is I make little bits of progress, 500 words here, 1,000 words there. You know, I'm not, still not done with it, but I'm getting closer to the end. But I have to be intentional about that because if I'm not intentional about that, it's not going to get done. Because it's very easy for me to put that off. Well, it's this big project. I'll get to it eventually. No, it doesn't work that way. I'll never get to it if I think that way. I have to be intentional. So the same is true for the progress that we make in our spiritual lives. It doesn't happen by accident. At least, well, it can, but we shouldn't rely on it happening by accident. So our posture should be one of listener and imaginer, but it should, that posture should give way to real action and reformation. A third uh, reason that we should do self-examination is that it prevents us from becoming forgetful. So it reminds us of God's presence in our lives. And the more we become aware of that presence, the more it encourages us to live out or of that presence. Um, there's a really great little book called Practicing the Presence of God by Brother Lawrence. You can buy it for real cheap on Amazon or, or at any used bookstore, I'm sure. And you can really, you could read it in probably an hour. It's really short. But Brother Lawrence was a monk who was in charge of washing the dishes in the monastery. And, you know, that's not a most, the glam, most glamorous or sexy job to be the dishwasher in the monastery. Um, but he found that if he became aware that God was present with him in every single moment of his life, that it transfigured washing dishes. So it wasn't just a menial, mundane task. It was an act of service and an act of worship, even. Um, And so if we can live into that 
And I think self-examination can help us do that. If we can live into that understanding of God's presence, it can do wonders. It can really transform every situation in which we're in. Because we begin to see people not as enemies, not as random strangers, um, but people for whom Christ has died. Um, And we can see our interaction with them playing out in front of our Lord. Um, I think one author, uh, Greg Boyd, who writes on this topic, says that every moment we're not aware of God's presence with us, we're living as functional atheists, which is pretty scary because a lot of us, I think, do that too often. We go on autopilot and we don't even think. So um, it should also be noted that forgetfulness is one of the major problems in the Old Testament with Israel. They forgot what God did for them. And when they forgot what God did for them, they then repeated the same cycles of violence, of oppression, of idolatry, of empty religious ritualism. Um, They failed to pass their faith on to the next generation. They forgot God's great actions on their behalf. So when we do self-examination, not only do we replay events understanding that God was present the whole day. He was present in the car when that guy cut me off. But also it prevents us from forgetting. It prevents us from forgetting. So that, in, that incident can be, um, can be transfigured in my mind from a guy being a jerk on the road to God protecting me because the way that guy drove was dangerous, but he, I didn't get in a crash. You know, something like that. We can see God working in everything that way. A fourth point is that the more reflective we become about our lives with the eyes of faith, the more we become aware of our acute dependence on God. When I look back at my day, at all the things I didn't do, at all the things I didn't do well, the things that I shouldn't have done, I become aware of just how much grace it is that I need. And it's a lot. Caroline would tell you that. Self-examination accentuates the line that we prayed in the prayer of thanksgiving from the daily office. We bless thee for our creation, preservation, and all the blessings of this life. And it asks us to consider how does our awareness of God's God's actions impact how we should live our lives. If we understand that all is gift, that should really change the way that we behave about things. The final point, and perhaps the most important one, is that self-examination should ultimately lead us to become more merciful to others because it confronts us with that reality that we are sinners. So Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German Lutheran theologian and pastor, says that anybody who has once been horrified by the dreadfulness of his own sin that nailed Jesus to the cross will no longer be horrified by even the rankest sins of a brother. Similarly, Danish uh, Lutheran philosopher Soren Kierkegaard argued that we shouldn't really be concerned about whether others will go to heaven. He says, of course, they'll go to heaven because, of course, God can save them. The real question is whether I'll get there. So this orientation uh, that refuses to be disgusted by the other is what Bonhoeffer calls living under the cross. And think about our Lord hanging there on the cross, being mocked and scorned and spitted at. And then there's the one thief on the cross who, from what we can tell, at first at least, was participating. And then he has a change of heart for whatever reason. And our Lord doesn't thumb his nose at him or ignore him, but tells him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. He's not horrified by him. Uh, Quite the opposite. His arms are open on the cross for all who would come in his embrace. 
the cross becomes a mirror for us, uh, a mirror for us in that it shows us how we fall short by disparity. Um, you know, when that man cut me off, I wasn't that I was not modeling how Christ acted on the cross when I reacted the way I did. And the cross shows us the example. What should I be like in that moment? Well, whatever it is, it should look like Christ crucified. So self-examination confronts us with our shortcomings so that we can avoid being the ungrateful servant in the parable who once he was forgiven of his massive debt assaults his fellow servant who owed him a few bucks. And understanding or at least beginning to understand the grace that we have received, we should have in us instilled um, an inherent respect for the dignity of the image of God in others. We can begin to see others as encounters or means to an encounter with God because they're made in his image. Even if they're fallen, even if they do violence to that image, that's what they are. So uh, quickly, how do we do self-examination? A couple things to note. It's important for us to have a balance between short-term and long-term when engaging in self-examination. So if it's a practice you want to adopt, I would recommend getting a journal just for this activity. Engage in daily or semi-daily examination, which really is indispensable. But then it's helpful to set aside time to zoom out a bit. Look at the past week as a whole. Look at the past month as a whole. Are there sins that keep coming up? I keep yelling at people when they cut me off. I keep doing X, Y, or Z. This, I think, helps us from getting lost, too lost in the weeds by forcing us to recognize behavioral patterns and acknowledge our progress as well. It's also helpful to plan self-examination in conjunction with confession. There are a few templates you can use to this end. Um, so I have given you a handout um, about self-examination, and that's from the St. Augustine's prayer book, which is a great little uh, prayer book if you can find it, um, that guides you through the seven deadly sins and all the subspecies of sins that belong to each category. And of course, unless, you're, unless you have a really bad week, you probably won't have committed all those sins that it lists, um, but it's a good exercise to go through each one and to think, okay, have I committed this sin? Have I done that? Um, and sometimes things will stick out to you that you wouldn't have flagged otherwise, so it can be helpful. There are other, uh, there are other templates that you can use to guide your self-examination. The Ten Commandments some people use as a guide, though Martin Thornton reminds us that if we do that, we have to understand the Ten Commandments through the filter of the fuller revelation of Christ. So the commandments say don't murder. Well, most likely, most of us have not murdered anyone in the past week. However, what does Christ say about the commandment, don't murder? He says, don't even be angry at your brother because then you've committed murder in your heart. Well, just because you haven't had an affair this week doesn't mean you haven't violated the commandment on adultery, right? Don't even look after another person with lust in your heart or else you've committed adultery with her. So um, we have to understand Jesus elevates the Ten Commandments if we're going to use them. But they're, they're a fine guide, and we do that on Sundays. On the fourth Sunday of every month, we do the, the, the Decalogue. Well, that's what that is. We can also use the three capital sins as a guide, which are the lust of flesh, lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Or the three duties of a Christian, duty to God, duty to neighbor, 
and duty to self. But these often end up just going back to the seven deadly sins. So I, personally, I find the seven deadly sins to be the most helpful. Um, it might also be helpful if you can find someone who can be a spiritual director for you to talk it through with them. What I'd like to do at this point is, um, is to look a little bit at the process of examen from the spiritual exercises of St. Ignatius of Loyola. St. Ignatius of Loyola was the founder of the Jesuit order in the Roman Catholic Church. He lived from 1491 to 1556 and was known for his rigorous spiritual discipline. To help explain this, I'm drawing a little bit from a pamphlet on the spiritual exercises by Father George Askenbrunner, who is a Jesuit priest, who explains the practice of examen pretty concisely. So the goal of examen is for us to recognize that God is drawing us to himself and to analyze how it is that we're responding to that drawing. So this requires us to become aware not only of our actions, but our feelings, and even more to become aware of why we do what we do, why we feel what we feel. So we begin examen with thanksgiving. Understanding that prayer is only possible through our Lord, and the closer we get with him, the more we become aware of our complete dependence on him. So as we become increasingly aware of this fact, the more we turn to him in doxology and thanksgiving because we become more aware that all is a gift. And this should cause us to meditate and ask ourselves some questions. What have I got to be grateful for today? How much do I take for granted What has made me ungrateful, dissatisfied, or frustrated? Am I becoming more grateful and contented? Once we uh, we get through Thanksgiving, we ask for a prayer for enlightenment. And there are many ways that we can do this. Um, John 14, 26, Jesus promises his disciples that the Holy Ghost would come to teach you all things and bring all things to your remembrance, whatsoever I have said unto you. So at this juncture, we can pray the prayer for guidance, which can be found on page 595 of the Book of Common Prayer, which is a really nice prayer. Um, The St. Augustine's prayer book has a a nice prayer for self-examination on pages 112 to 113. Or we could just do a simple short prayer. I'm about, to, I'm about to review my day. I ask for the light to know God and to know myself as God sees me. So really, that can be kind of up to you as far as how you want to do that. But we should pray for his enlightenment so that as we remember things, he'll bring to mind what it is that we need to know. I'm sorry, the text on this slide is a little small. There's a lot of questions. Because after we pray for enlightenment, we then turn to examination. So the goal is not to exclusively focus on our victories and failures because we don't want to become self-absorbed and buy into the myth of independence. Our focus should instead be on how I respond to God's actions in my life. How was I drawn to God today? Was there a friend, an event, the beauty of nature, a Bible reading, or a verse? Our, uh, the headmaster at the school where I taught, it was a classical Christian school, he would always say to us that there are no accidents. There are no interruptions. So during your planning period, when you've got a lot to do and a student comes in and they have a question, that's not an interruption. Don't look at it that way. It's a divine appointment. The second thing um, that we should ask is, did I learn about God and his, and his ways in the mundane, in the spare moments, in something that happened? Sometimes it strikes us at the, at the oddest times we have a realization about something God wants us to learn.
Did I meet him in fears, joys, work, misunderstandings, weakness, suffering? Did his word come alive in prayer, scripture, and the liturgy? Did I bring Christ into my community? Did they bring Christ to me? Have I been a sign of God's presence and love with the people I met today? Did I treat them with the dignity and respect that is due to other image bearers? And I would say this even applies to our online interactions, which is unfortunately uh, lost in many uh, places. Did I go out to the lonely, the sorrowful, the discouraged, and the needy? Was I aware of God's work in my own locality, in my own country, in other nations, and most especially in the church at large? Have I had a keener sense of being loved, of my sinfulness, of desire to give back what I received, of dependence? Is there some part of my life untouched by Jesus Christ and where he is calling me to a change of heart? Being aware of our sins as they come up through self-examination should lead us to have sorrow or compunction. Sorrow or compunction. Um, But again, like we talked about earlier, this is not something that we should wallow in, something that we should despair at, something that leads us to despondency. Rather, sorrow is actually, uh, can be a good thing if it's used rightly. So I think we live in a culture, you know, various uh, times and places emphasize things or overemphasize things differently. So you could think about an era like the Victorian era. Perhaps they emphasized uh, shame and sorrow a little bit too much um, to where they, you had a lot of repressed people. However, um, I think our culture now is we're at a place where we're told sorrow and shame are almost always bad. Um, and, and there are very unhealthy ways of handling it. I mean, we can think of Judas. I think Judas is probably the best example of someone who handles shame and sorrow unhealthily, right? He turns totally inward, cuts himself off from all hope. That's not what we want to do. Um, but real sorrow, real sorrow that produces fruit is a gift from God, So we recognize the good kind of sorrow if it produces good fruits, a wonder at being sought by God and brought back to him. We might think of the trilogy of parables in St. Luke where the shepherd goes out to find the one sheep out of the hundred or the woman tries to find the one lost coin out of the ten or the one prodigal son returns home to his father's father's rejoicing. Um, Is the sorrow that we have producing joy and gratitude because we have been made sharers in Christ's victory, unworthy as we are? Does it produce in us a mistrust of ourself and a trust in God? Does it bring to us an awareness and acceptance of our weakness? And does it bring to us an awareness of or or the conviction that uh, we're being converted from a sinner into a son and a daughter of God? So, once we've gotten through the sorrow and compunction, we then turn to face the future. Philippians 3.14, I press toward the mark for the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. We should never stay in a place of despondence or feel hopeless. With God's grace, we should move forward. So how will we go forward? What adjustments need to be made so that we can better perform our role as disciple? What part of our lives do we need to offer up to the Lord for healing and protection? Above all, do we have hope that God will be faithful 
to the promise that he made to us at our baptism and that he continues to make through the sacraments that we receive, that he will transform us into who it is that we are to be. So self-examination is very important uh, because it helps us uh, become more like him. Um, And I think in a way, again, to go back to the point earlier, it it helps, um, it's a very humanizing activity um, because it doesn't always look the same for everyone, um, but it allows us in our unique context and our unique uh, enmeshment of relationships that we have to figure out what what does it look like to be a disciple here right now. So uh, any questions um, as we come to an end of our second session of the day? Yes, ma'am. It's actually not a question so much as would you print out that the, all mm-hmm. of those questions? Absolutely, yes. Because those are really good. I, I would like to follow Yes, yes, yes. Yeah. I wanted to, and I honestly, I just forgot. Okay, well, that'd be great. just make a PDF of your PowerPoint? Yes. Yes, yes. What we'll do is um, I'll upload all of the handouts and the PowerPoint and all that onto the website so that where the audio of this will be, you can just download that stuff from there. I'll also try and remember to print a few physical copies. So in the next week or two, if you think about it, you can ask me and I'll just hand it to you. But you could print it from the website. Yes, yes, yes. Yep. Anything else? Okay, let's take another five-minute break. Let's try and, by 11.15, be back so that we can talk about confession. And that will be a little bit shorter than self-examination. Self-examination was our longest. Um, So let's take a five-minute break. We'll be back 11.15.